So I would say just if you take a step back and think about how you're managing pigs, there's a mic- microbiome component to all of those things, how you mix pigs, when you switch the diet, and when you decide to switch the diet, you know, most, most nutritionists have a, um, have a handle on, uh, I will only change by 5% a main ingredient. Why do you do that? When, when probably least class would tell you to change it sometimes by 20 or 30%, uh, uh-huh. that is probably microbiome related, right? That you're causing a dramatic shift in the microbiome and opening up all these niches that weren't there before because of that um, disruption uh, to, to pathogens. Did you know that the pig's microbiota has more than 400 species of fungi and bacteria, yielding approximately 10 times more cells than those in the pig's body? These microbes are at the nexus of health and productivity as they communicate with each other and with the pig's organs and systems. Filio, Pylosoph, is committed to pushing the boundaries of animal health and nutrition and well-being to better nourish and feed our world. United with our partners, we are key influencers in the quest to discover, define, and manipulate the pig's microbiome to significantly improve pig lifetime health and productivity. This podcast series is provided to help increase your understanding of these exciting and thought-provoking topics. Welcome to today's Filio Pig Microbiome Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Lockmiller, Senior Swine Technical Services Manager for North America. Thank you for joining us today for this discussion of new frontiers in the pig microbiome, physiology, and well-being. Hello. Today, I have joining me Dr. Andrew Van Kessel from the University of Saskatchewan, amongst other places. Uh, Andrew is at a at a different location right now, and I think it's a temporary assignment. Isn't that right, Andrew? Well, it's a five-year assignment, so... Five-year assignment. Okay. Yeah. Do you want to give me just a little bit of your, our audience, a little bit of your background and and what you're currently doing and maybe some of the research that you've been involved in? Yeah, I'm, uh, I guess, you know, I've always been uh, interested in, in animal agriculture, grew up on a, on a dairy farm uh, and, uh, and, and always was looking for a career in agriculture and ultimately ended up with a, with a PhD and, uh, uh, and with a faculty position in animal science department, uh, uh, and ultimately uh, interested in animal nutrition, which which brought me to an interest in um, uh, in antibiotic alternatives and, and uh, nutrition and, and feed supplements to improve animal health. My my uh, training is in is in physiology and, and immunology. Uh, I, my PhD is actually from the University of Saskatchewan, and uh, I guess about uh, 20 years ago or so, I ended up in, in a faculty position uh, uh, in the Department of Animal and Poultry Science at the University of Saskatchewan. For the last eight years or so, I have been, uh, I, I was the uh, head of that department, so I had a significant administrative role too in terms of, uh, of the department's uh, uh, function. Uh, after having served eight years as uh, as head of the Department of Animal and Poultry Science, I was uh, uh, looking for a new challenge, uh, considering going back to the lab and, and building my program again, or looking for a new administrative challenge, and, and ultimately uh, decided to take on a challenge here at the Vaccine and Infectious Disease Organization, VITO, uh, as Associate Director of Research. Um, VITO is a is an institute located within the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, it has a One Health mandate, mandate looking at emerging, re-emerging zoonotic diseases in animals and in humans. Um, you know, we have Canada's largest uh, high containment facilities in terms of level three facilities to work with things like African swine fever, which of course is significant interest to the um, um, uh, the pig industry right now. And of course, SARS-CoV-2. We are working in the human field and and uh, working uh, very much to develop to understand its pathogenesis, uh, developing a vaccine which will go into clinical trials here in January, and working with national and international companies to, because of the uniqueness of level three facilities, high containment facilities to study uh, pathogens uh, such as SARS-CoV-2. Um, uh, there's a great call on, on those facilities and our expertise to 
help develop therapies and, and vaccines to uh, help control this pandemic. That's fascinating. So along those lines, and just, just for a moment uh, with the pandemic, your background with the notobiotic pig and, and with the microbiome research, how has that played into, into what you're doing currently? Some of these, uh, whether it's swine, African swine fever or, or the COVID-19 um, virus? Right. right. Well, um, there, there's not a huge connection there. Again, Vito has uh, this organization has a, you know, has a huge bandwidth in terms of interest in animal production diseases through to human pathogens. Obviously, that host microbial relationship and uh, the immune mechanisms that govern that relationship uh, apply to all also to host pathogens relationships, right? And as we understand, the microbiome is critical to the development of the immune system, particularly the gut microbiome and the, and the gastrointestinal immune system. So from a general perspective, um, the, uh, the role of the microbiome in establishing innate and adaptive immune mechanisms uh, and in developing uh, barrier function are, are important respect to animal health and, and developing therapies to protect animal health and human health. Okay. That's, I, to me, that's, that's just very interesting and pretty fascinating. So as you started into this, into this project, uh, you know, in, in some previous discussions you and I've had, you, you mentioned uh, fairly early on your work with the notobiotic pig and then um, also some of the work with, uh, with eggs just because the egg is a naturally notobiotic environment or, or can be. I'm curious as you've dove into that, uh, maybe if you want to define a little bit about the different types of, of research that you've done or, or why you've done that, as well as then maybe some of the interesting interactions that you've uh, discovered between the various uh, individual bacteria. I know, for example, you and I talked about E. coli non-pathogenic E. coli even versus lactobacilli in the notobiotic pig and some of the physiological effects that that, that triggered. And indeed. I think maybe our audience would be interested in that. Oh, indeed. And as I said, you know, my uh, initial uh, work uh, using molecular tools to profile, profile the, the very complex microbiology of the gastrointestinal tract early on made me appreciate how complex that environment is and therefore how difficult it is to study the relationship between host and microbiome. And, and again, it made sense to me at the time that you know, we needed to simplify that environment. And, and even at this time, this was 20 years ago now, we needed to understand what the role was of that complex microbiota in terms of gastrointestinal development. And of course, the, the the obvious way to do that is to remove the microbiome uh, and look at a germ-free animal. And that's what we set out to do uh, uh, in the pig model. It took a number of years, actually, of work, and, and we were uh, eventually successful um, in developing, you know, cesarean section techniques and HEPA-filtered sterilized uh, rearing systems. Sterilizing milking sows and sterilizing colostrum is not an easy task. Uh, we got there and... and uh, uh, and uh, and we're able to to do some of the very early studies in comparing a germ-free animal versus a conventional animal, and then importantly, as you mentioned, comparing some commensal organisms that we don't associate with disease, that such as lactobacilli, such as and and such as an E. coli, a non-pathogenic E. coli, that are common inhabitants of the gastrointestinal tract, which we don't think cause disease, but the question was, well, what, what role do they play in the gastrointestinal tract in that host microbial interface? And, you know, some of that work we published is really uh, some of the first to demonstrate the dramatic impact of a conventional microbiota on uh, gastrointestinal structure, particularly small intestinal structure. We saw uh, for this, you know, the scientists in the audience, we saw villi that were over a meter, over a millimeter long, sorry, not a meter, over a millimeter long uh, in the uh, gastrointestinal tract of a germ-free. So, you know, when we think about um, the structure of the small intestine and of the mucosa of the small intestine, we associate long villi um, with a healthy gut and narrow crypts with a healthy gut because we're not putting effort into replacing that epithelium 
So we now, we now have a very mature epithelium capable of the digestive and absorptive uh, mechanisms that we rely on to provide the pig with nutrients, as well as uh, a mature in its ability to serve as a barrier to uh, bacterial translocation. Uh, and so we saw these tremendously long villi uh, in germ-free. So there was no stimulation of replacement of, uh, of those epithelial cells. Uh, versus, you know, the standard villi height in a in a, uh, a conventional pig would be, you know, you know, it depends on where you are in the gut, but but l less than half of that. No, less, so the lamina propria are the immune cells immediately below the epithelial layer along the gastrointestinal tract. The lamina lamina propria is is populated with white blood cells, various uh, types of white blood cells that come and play a significant role immediately as organisms cross over to, to of course, destroy those organisms before they can infect. Really, an abs the absence of, uh, of a lamina propria in a germ-free pig. Um, connective tissue, and that was all. Uh, Pyrus patches are the organized lymphoid tissues where those actually lymphoid cells are first stimulated and produced and then travel throughout the body and come back to the lamina propria. They were rudimentary in size. So there's really no stimulation of uh, gastrointestinal uh, development in these germ-free pigs versus a conventional pig. In fact, uh, you're probably aware that the, the enterocyte in a newborn pig is a, a fetal-type enterocyte, or it's, it's open, right? It allows for colostrum absorption. And then those are replaced typically within the first couple of days. And then we move to a, an adult-type phenotype epithelium that's closed to colostrum transport, to antibody transport. Well, we could see those fetal enterocyte-type cells are even at 14 days of age in a germ-free pig. They had, still at 14 days of age, they had their original epithelium. They hadn't re basically replaced any of it. And versus a conventional pig, of course, which those were, were long lost. Um, lactobacilli was, when we monoassociate with lactobacilli, monoassociated means we introduced that single organism and no other organism was present. E. coli, on the other hand, again, a commensal E. coli lacking any of the, of the pathogenic genes that we associate with the enterotoxigenic E. coli induced significant uh, epithelial cell turnover, significant expression of mucin, significant changes in the expression of genes associated with nutrient transport and digestion. So it was a much more... Uh, and you know, this is back 20 years ago, but it was a much more uh, a much more significant interaction with the host uh, than lactobacilli. And in my mind, that was some of the first information that we had that differences in the composition of the microbiome indeed impact the development of the gastrointestinal tract. So that you know, as we come today, gut modifiers changing the microbiome composition does have an influence, can have an influence. Um, on the certainly on the digestive and absorptive mechanisms, and also the uh, barrier function of the gastrointestinal tract. Um, but of course, that was very basic work um, back then. As I as you mentioned, um, you know, we did we have moved on more recently to an egg model and an ovo model, and that really reflected the fact that the pig model was extremely difficult and extremely expensive. Uh, cesarean sections. Uh, uh, a lot of preparation. Uh, any any error in the protocol results in a contamination, and you lose a significant amount of of of, uh, of effort in terms of a contamination. So it was an extremely difficult model to work with, and explains why you don't see much published in the uh, in the germ-free literature with respect to the pig. Uh, and so we became interested in working with birds, and so um, we've we've moved with birds in ovo because. Although there's some discussion in the literature that there's a microbiome both in utero and in ovo, I'm, I struggle with that concept in terms of having the experience of introducing a bacterium into an egg. Um, it will grow and it will occupy the entire gastrointestinal tract of an incubating egg. Um, and the reports that we see of a functional microbiome either in an egg or in, in the placenta, uh, I struggle to... Uh, to understand uh, that they would be functional and and uh, and growing in an environment that's essentially a petri dish with all the wonderful nutrients that they need to to grow and thrive. 
essentially, I can consider the ANOVA environment a germ-free environment and a readily accessible environment for us to um, inoculate with different organisms and understand the impact of that organism on the developing gastrointestinal tract. We also have developed that model so we can we can uh, hatch eggs in a um, um, in, in a clear environment, uh, in sorry, in individualized uh, containers. Uh, and so, you know, if we do have a breach, uh, if we lose one egg and not uh, 50 eggs in terms of containment, uh, and so it, it, it allows us to work uh, with with much greater confidence in our ability to generate results. And uh, and so we can inoculate an ovo, or we can uh, we can work with these chicks in, in individual containers. Uh, again, these are sterilized containers. We feed in HEPA-filtered air, sterilized air, uh, and we can maintain a germ-free environment in individual containers for some time. And again, look at the impact of individual organisms on gut development. Now, some interesting stuff coming out of that that uh, that work is is probably a uh, Introducing probiotic bacteria in ovo is, in my view, probably not a viable approach. Um, uh, the, the embryo is, is not at a stage of the development that that uh, can provide an advantage, in my view, to the developing embryo. Interestingly, did some work again with E. coli, just trying to you know look at the differences and uh, and inoculating E. coli uh, into these uh, into these eggs killed the uh, developing embryo, did not kill it, it survived, but it wasn't able to pip and survive. It would start pipping and then die. Uh, and we could even inoculate, you know, 100 organisms and that would be the case. We started inoculating at E17, same result, e, uh, sorry, day 17 of incubation, day 18 of incubation, day 19 of incubation, same result. Day 20 of incubation, they're fine. Uh, and E. coli is no longer a problem for these birds. So there's a developmental switch between, I believe at least there's a developmental switch in these birds between 19 and 20 days of age. Uh, and it's something I'd like to understand further in terms of that developmental switch. Uh, is that something that we can manipulate in the future to um, such that we have a chick that's hatched with a, uh, a more robust ability to protect its gastrointestinal tract? We had done this work in the notobiotic pig model. Uh, as I said, it was an extremely uh, it was an extremely expensive and challenging, and so we were looking to simplify that to some degree. Um, the egg model, uh, the ANOVO, uh, actually the bird model first, uh, simply because birds are smaller and they hatch in an egg, and you can sterilize the outside of the egg and put it in an isolator, uh, had some some advantage to it over doing cesarean sections in pigs. And that even further led into working with birds. Then, oh, why don't we go in ovo? Because the in ovo environment is 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 also largely uh, germ-free. Um, and so we've been doing some work in that model. Um, we we are able to hatch uh, eggs in a germ-free isolator and and frequently obtain germ-free birds in that system. Uh, and again, we have looked at monoassociation models. We've looked at monoassociation with probiotic species. Uh, but really, um, the true interest or, you know, term notobiology means a known microbiome. You know what's present. I already mentioned some of the stark differences that we see in a germ-free versus a conventional pig. And if I expose a germ-free pig or germ-free chicken to a single organism, that interaction might be quite different than in the context of, of the changes that take place when the animal is exposed to a conventional environment. So, you know, do, do they talk the same in a germ-free environment when there's various and older cells, as we suggested, no lamina propria, versus a, a more conventional environment? And so what we move to uh, in the bird model now is uh, what we're calling a minimal microbiome model, where we have identified four genera that are representative of the major taxa in the gastrointestinal tract. We, we colonize with those five genera, and then we look at the impact of, of adding feed additives and probiotics on top of those five uh, common species. So we have now a defined microbiome. We can look whether there are changes in those representative uh, species.
uh, and uh, we can uh, we can more precisely identify the impact of this uh, new feed additive with respect to changing the relative representation of those five or changing functional pathways in the host associated with uh, protection against uh, translocation. Yeah, we've also, you know, uh, again, it's still, that's still, uh, you know, a, uh, a very uh, a very challenging model to run. Uh, and so we have adopted, done some work in the ANOVO model, introducing bacteria uh, into the uh, amniotic fluid uh, in uh, ANOVO, which, ultimately is swallowed by the bird and ends up in the gastrointestinal tract and colonize the gastrointestinal tract. I would say, generally speaking, I don't think ANOVO is the way to deliver probiotic species. I don't think the development of the tract is is at the stage yet where, you know, we, we originally went into this work where we were thinking that introducing a bacterium would, would advance the development of the tract and make for a more advanced uh, a bird that was more able to protect itself at hatch. I don't think the work that we've seen so far is, is really supporting that, but it's still an interesting model in order to understand how different bacteria inter interface with the hosts at a very basic level. Interesting things in E. coli, for example, we've done some work with E. coli that uh, um, has resulted when we inoculate E. coli into that model, the birds they can pip, but they can't hatch. They they eventually they they eventually die. They can poke a hole, but then they die. And even if we just inoculate 100 E. coli, again non-pathogenic, uh, and we do that at the incubation day 17, they hatch, of course, at 21. We can do that at day 17, 18, 19. If we do it at day 20, they're fine. So there's a developmental switch somewhere there, I believe. My our hypothesis is, and uh, this is with a grad student uh, Tomohiro Hamueka. Um, where uh, where we uh, we believe there's a developmental switch in that bird uh, that all of a sudden uh, the bird is able to develop a barrier function develops adequately to that the bird can protect itself and and keep that E. coli in the within the confines of the lumen and it would be very interesting to study that switch and understand whether that can that switch can be manipulated to enhance uh, the ability of the bird to protect itself at hatch. So that's interesting. Does the does the immune system tend to develop then in both birds and and mammals late in gestation? It's you know it's immune system development starts during gestation of course and continues beyond gestation and and certainly you know we know in mammals um, and in and, you know in, you can do an oval vaccination and you can do an utero vaccination and you can generate a primary immune response and and vaccine and protection by the, those approaches. So you have a functional immune system, um, but it's not fully developed and fully uh, and fully trained, if you will, to respond to the uh, environmental insults. Yeah. And one of the thoughts that that triggered in me and, and the reason part of the reason for that question was, uh, you know, for I know, for example, in human infants, if they are uh, born too early, then, you know, for example, the surfactant on the lungs hasn't fully developed. And and leads them to be predisposed towards respiratory infections, um, sometimes throughout their entire life. So yeah. it, it reminds me of that as you think about, you know, here you are late in the term on that on that uh, embryonic egg just before it hatches, and you're able to introduce a little bit of even non-pathogenic E. coli, and it dramatically affects their ability to uh, to even hatch and respond to the uh, external environment. So yes, and of course that you know. There's much interest today in that perinatal, perihatch period in terms of the long-term implications of the experience of an animal at that point in time uh, with respect to its long-term health implications. And that might be with respect to training, if you will, of the immune system. What, what, is, what bug should I be tolerant to? What bug should I consider as a pathogen? Uh, it could be in terms of, uh, as we're very much interested in, in the microbial ecology world, world that succession pattern, what organisms are able to colonize, what aren't, you know, do the early experiences of the neonate have long-term implications in terms of that microbiome later in life and how the immune system responds to stress and uh, pathogenic uh, exposure later in life. And therefore, of course, growth performance, feed for conversion efficiency. Yeah, and the, and the practical applications or implications of that as well. Uh, absolutely. This podcast has been brought to you by the experts at Filio by Lasoff. 
one of the largest primary fermentation organizations in the world. We are driving research and nutritional innovation to support swine health using natural and sustainable methods. So if we take that line of thought then and segue into a little bit, you know, for those that, that don't know, you've done a bit of work with Filio by uh, and LaSaf Yeast Company, uh, done some primary work with our global uh, research and development team. And as as you've taken your work with the notobiotic pig and the and the notobiotic uh, egg and and chicken, how has that segued into what you're what you've been working on and and some of the things that you've been trying to discover or trying questions you've been trying to answer with the the work that you've done with Filio? Yeah, um, you know I started working with uh, with Filio, you know, more than ten years ago I guess and. Uh, uh, like all things, uh, met uh, one of Filio's representative at, at a conference uh, after a talk and uh, and started talking about, had common interests, of course, and eventually made a, a visit to, I was working in Germany at the time, so it was easy to make a trip to Lille and, and visit the office there and talk about about approaches. And, of course, I, my interest is is always mechanistic, right? I'm I'm more on the on the basic side and more on understanding what the mechanisms of actions were and are, uh, and that was uh, an also an interest of of uh, Filio at the time, continues to be, uh, and so there was a great fit there. Actually, this was a time when I was still working with the pig model. And actually, we were hoping to do something with the pig model very similar to what I discussed with birds. Uh, we were actually hoping with uh, Filio to develop a, what we called a, a snatch model, uh, where we would, uh, you know, sanitize the, um, uh, the, the, the perivulval area of a sow, collect a piglet into a sterile towel, and immediately put it into an isolated environment. And in that way, hope to generate um, pigs with a very limited microbiome, a simplified microbiome, and hopefully fairly consistent microbiome uh, that we could then go forward and look and, and add yeast into and start to ask some of these mechanistic questions and gene expression que expressions uh, with respect to changes in microbiome and, and gut function. We kind of got that working, but it really, uh, and we published on it, but it really wasn't the um, the model that we felt was worthwhile continuing with, with yeast. And so um, we started to work more with conventional pigs and worked with, uh, again, with baby pigs supplementing during the suckling phase and post-weaning phase and focusing on primarily on changes in, in the microbiome. Uh, and to see whether we could correlate those changes with the performance responses uh, that we saw with yeast. And, and so we were, you know, we would see, we did record improvements in, in growth performance and average daily gain uh, in piglets uh, supplemented during suckling uh, and beyond uh, suckling into weaning. Uh, we saw, I would say we would, in, in some of the studies that we had done, we say there was some advantage in actually supplementing pre-weaning as well as post-weaning rather than only starting to supplement post-weaning. There was an advantage with respect to growth performance in terms of initiating prior to weaning. And, you know, we both understand that that's a tall order in a practical sense to supplement yeast in a suckling pig. But, of course, you can supplement the sow and, uh, and it will move through the sow into the piglet and perhaps use creep feed to, to further supplement it and so on. So there is a, a practical approach there to supplementing the pre-weaning pig. Interesting in terms of, again, you know, the focus on, on mechanisms. Um, in those pre-weaning pigs, in fact, we, we saw that yeast... The, the supplementation of live yeast actually reduced the diversity. The number and evenness of species in an individual pig was lower in yeast-supplemented pigs versus control pigs. And on its surface, that goes against, and this was associated with, with a, a faster growth performance, a, a heavier weaning weight in supplemented pigs. And the idea of having a less diverse microbiome goes against the dogma in microbial ecology. Greater diversity means that um, that the organisms are occupying every niche with a, a high level, a high degree of precision. They're they're all the nutrients and all the spaces are being utilized by bacteria that are highly adapted to that location. 
and it's very stable and there's less opportunity for new ones to come in. Um, and so we were surprised with that result, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, and there's, you know, others have reported uh, similar findings, perhaps in the in the baby pig uh, in the baby animal, baby mammal. Um, when you talk about uh, birth as germ free and immediate colonization, and we know there's a standard succession profile, right? And we can see, you know, early E. coli and Clostridia, strep, and then lactobacilli, and, and increasing diversity towards an adult-type phenotype. But, of course, those first suckling days, it's not a very diverse environment. It's a, it's a far less, uh, less diverse environment, environment than in the adults. And you can, you can almost think about, you know, all these different environmental organisms that are now have access to this space that isn't fully occupied um, because we don't have that high diversity. And so, you know, we have we constantly have a challenge of a new bacterium, a new organism trying to invade that space and, and become a significant part of it. Uh, and we wondered whether um, whether the addition of yeast, in fact, stabilized that succession profile and prevented these you know, almost the chaos of every new environmental organism coming in and trying to occupy a space by stabilizing that space in that environment and limiting the impact of, of each new environmental organism as it tries to um, occupy that space. That was our work. That's our working hypothesis around that. And we're not the only ones who have, uh, have seen in the neonatal model that reduced diversity is associated with uh, improved performance and, and that, that may be unique again to that succession profile again that's you know it's a hypothesis that we're working with so when you're speaking of reduced diversity are you speaking of the there, there's two different types of diversity that someone who is uh, peripherally associated with this field like myself that that i hear batted around the alpha diversity and then the beta diversity and there's there's a few measures of alpha diversity and, you know, different indexes or whatever. And, yes. and could you, for for the people that uh, could use a bit of explanation on that, just maybe go into that and then maybe go back to your point where there's maybe less diversity um, when you're uh, with some of these uh, nutritional manipulations you've mentioned. But yet at the end of the day, it, it ended up resulting in. Uh, you know, maybe a better outcome for the population. So. Yeah, so the, the two types of diversity that um, microbiologists talk about are alpha diversity and beta diversity. And the reference I was making there was really alpha diversity. Um, and with respect to alpha diversity, we're talking about the number and evenness of species in a pig. So, um, so that's how diverse is the environment in this? How many species are in this pig? How many species are in this pig? How many species are in this pig? So if there's a 10 in this pig and a 100 in this different species in this pig, this obviously pig B has a higher alpha diversity. Um, and there's also a component in some of the indices that measure that of evenness. If there's 10 here and they're all equivalent in terms of the relative abundance, that's very even. If one of them represents 90% and the other nine represent 1% each, um, that's, uh, that's a lower alpha diversity. So when I talk about when I when I was speaking about these baby pigs, we saw less alpha diversity. Each the the pig's uh, microbiome was less diverse um, uh, in pigs that were supplemented with yeast. There were fewer species were represented. Uh, beta diversity is a reflection of the population, uh, and it's a reflection of the uh, relative abundance of species in the group given um, yeast, for example, in our in, in this particular discussion versus the control group. Are the is the relative the species that are represented and their relative abundance in this group different from this group? And that's essentially beta diversity. And we did see some uh, differences there as well uh, with yeast supplementation that, for example, uh, um, very consistently, um, to be honest, in a couple of trials, actinobacteria. Um, actinobacteria is a, is a phylum. It is um, it generally in pigs, it's, you know, the third, fourth, fifth 
most abundant phylum after Bacteroides and Firmicutes. You may have heard those terms before in terms of phylum. It's a very, like all phyla, they're very diverse in terms of the species that are represented. But we consistently see that, that phylum increased in abundance when we yeast was supplemented. And, um, and again, others have also identified or, um, uh, genera within this species associated with, with improved uh, health uh, in humans and mice and, uh, and in pigs. So a bifidobacter, it's tempting to think bifidobacteria is a common actinobacteria. We have seen some evidence of increased bifidobacteria. And sorry, I mentioned bifidobacteria because it's a common probiotic used in humans uh, and to some degree in animals as well. Um, we did see occasionally some enhancement in the representation by bifidobacteria, um, but I would say that the actinobacteria response was, was probably not bifidobacteria, but other uh, genera within that phylum, uh, again, that have been associated with, uh, with uh, improved performance. We also some, you know, uh, Prevotella, uh, Ruminococcus. Um, Prevotella in one of the studies was, was positively correlated with average daily gain, and others have seen that as well. We're seeing Prevotella come out, come out more commonly now as a, um, or frequently now as a species, uh, a uh, fiber fermenting species that seems to, in a number of different studies, have some association with uh, performance advantage. So when you think about um, what you shared here with the differences and the changes in diversity, the diversity within the pig and then within that population of pigs applied to individual treatments, I mean, I assume part of the reason for the beta diversity in a natural environment is just purely an evolutionary uh, function. And as far as a survival function of the species that, um, you know, some are, are more diverse than others and more capable of overcoming novel challenges. But in a commercial production setting, it, it would seem that you would want less beta diversity. And that at the same time, you know, you mentioned the Prevotella and are there. Yeah. Is there some of this where people are starting to try and control beta diversity and and they're trying then to look for markers or individual sure. at least families of bugs? Sure. So you know, I don't I, I don't think it would be appropriate to think of uh, beta uh, the case of beta diversity to be more or less. Beta diversity is different, right? This, this mm -hmm. profile of, of organisms that is represented is different from this profile. That's that's beta diversity and. And an environment or a treatment would uh, would advantage this profile over this, uh, and and the and and profile A uh, induces perhaps increased recovery of energy from fiber or changes in the immune system uh, and aid immune system that protect this pig over this pig, um, if this population of pigs over this population of pigs, and in such a case. Um, so yes, we would. I think everyone working in this field uh, is trying to, to identify biomarkers, or you know, what indeed is the ideal microbiome that we should all be aiming for with our biosecurity strategies, with our nutritional strategies, with our feed additive strategies. Uh, and uh, I think that continues to remain elusive. We have clues, like I mentioned, in terms of Prevotella. We have clues, like I mentioned, in terms of just overall diversity. Um, and we can talk about, uh, you know, uh, the relative abundance of, of, of lactobacilli versus E. coli has been, uh, has been identified previously as an indicator. But we just, we be very honest, we're not at a place where we are, where I can tell you that this is the profile of bacteria that you should promote in your pigs. And if you do that, they'll grow faster and be more capable of uh, protecting themselves against disease. We're, we're not there yet. Uh, and that may be for a number of reasons. One, of course, is the tremendous amount of diversity that's out there. Um, you know, we're talking about an environment that is, that is highly diverse. And, you know, we know all the common factors that affect that diversity from what you, whether you're feeding corn or soy or canola or wheat or barley, uh, whatever additives you're using, um, uh, you know, pigs in this pen versus the pigs in this pen over here. All of these things uh, have significant effects on, on the composition of the gastrointestinal microbiome. And so when we see it, it 
generates when we're dealing with this complex environment, it generates challenges in terms of understanding. When I go to your farm, farm A, B, and C, I might see different things. One of the challenges we're facing in this whole field right now is that much of the work, mechanistic work, is done in a research environment in what you know what we call clean facilities that bring pigs in, bring them back out, and it might be down for a week or whatever, cleaned, and so they're very highly clean. Is that microbiome different? Um, than in a commercial setting. One of the studies I'm involved in in Canada right now is a, is a national study where we're actually going to uh, multiple farms across Canada using multiple different feeding strategies. You know, in eastern Canada, we use corn soy. Western Canada, uh, wheat, barley, canola, right? So we're yeah. going across a range of different uh, um, strategies and trying to understand in that diverse a setting can we uh, can we identify profiles associated with higher performing pigs and with pigs that are healthier? So that continues to be a, a big challenge. Uh, we would love to have those biomarkers and and be able to uh, you know have a diagnostic tool that I could walk onto your farm and and take a recording of uh, what bacteria are in the uh, fecal material of the of the pig one week post weaning and tell you how you're doing. But um, that's not the case at this time. Um, you know, I could also speak to, is the fecal bacterium the place where we're going to find that, or do we need to move up the gastrointestinal tract where we know, you know, the, the fecal, fecal material probably is somewhat representative of the distal gut, but is it representative of the small intestine? Do we need that information? Um, and do we have, even with the profiling, right now most of the profiling is taxonomic profiling using 16S ribosomal RNA. So I can say, you know, at the family level, probably, um, what organisms are present. But we know that this genus and this genus, genus A and genus B, you know, their functional capacity has some overlap. And genus A might actually be able to replace genus B in some instances. So... Um, is a taxonomic profile sufficient to have for the kind of information that we need to assess functional differences? Uh, and so that's why we're going, you know, even deeper into metagenomic sequencing and metabolomics to understand uh, the, all the genes that are present, all the metabolic capacity that's present in that microbiome and the products of that, meta, that uh, capacity, genomic capacity in terms of the metabolome. Um, and, you know, what kinds of products are these, this complex microbiota generating that are then sensed by the host and uh, impact the, um, uh, their responses in terms of uh, growth performance to nutrition, nutritional partitioning uh, and uh, immunity. Uh, it's a tall order. Yeah, it is. It is. I've, I've likened it in the past to, um, you know, the early explorers who were, just simply trying to circumnavigate the globe and, and just get an idea of what the world looked like. That to me feels like that's where we're at in this is we're, we're just barely pushing into the frontier and, and trying to define it. As, as we think about that, what are the, maybe to, to kind of bring this back around, what are some of the, maybe the exciting or the, or the practical uh, discoveries or, hopes to discover in this research that you're doing that keeps leading you to believe, you know what, this has long-term benefit for animal well-being and for humankind. And, you know, you know, the, I guess the question is, is, you know, it's a big question of why, uh, why are we doing this? You know, for me, it comes back to, um, you know, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't put our eggs all in one basket. Many years we put our eggs perhaps in the antibiotic basket in terms of animal production. We know we can't do that. We've also learned that we can't rely on any one approach to protecting the health of our animals and uh, and preserving the their ability to perform according to their genetic potential. And so you know this is about a multi-pronged approach. Um, you know, whether it's biosecurity, whether it's use of vaccines, whether it's selecting the right ingredients, uh, fiber and fermentable proteins, and, and whether it's using the right additives. Um, uh, so we know 
we, we obviously are, uh, are fundamentally aware of the relationship between animal health and animal performance uh, and uh, the investment in, in all of those things to prophylactically control disease. And so I see this, I see the microbiome as one of the tools. It's not, it's not the panacea, it's not going to solve our problems. Don't wait for microbiome to provide the silver, or the study of the microbiome to provide the silver bullet that's going to protect all our herds going forward, like we may have looked at antibiotics in the past. It is one in a number of different tools that will help to make an animal more resilient, uh, more and, uh, and um, able to protect itself against infection. We have a number of tools in our toolbox box right now that we know, uh, based on direct studies, we frequently get a health and performance response to them. Um, what we don't often know, or what we can't often predict, is when we get that performance response. We know yeah. it works sometimes, we don't know it works all the time. I think to get to the place to know what tool to use to what situation, the microbiome, study of the microbiome can help us get there. We understand what we're starting with uh, in terms of a microbiome, how to manipulate it to improve performance. Um, that, you know, a study of the microbiome will get to that to our next step. Yes, this will work in that environment. No, it won't work in that environment. And, and Is beyond microbiome, in terms of host response, what pathways are we turning on in the host? You know, are we doing it through a change in the microbiome, or are we doing it through a particular metabolome that is then a metabolite that is then sensed by the host and it changes a certain um, mucus secretion pathway or uh, epithelial transport pathway or tight junctional protein? We learn those things. You know, we need to know these pathways in order to develop the next generation of products that take advantage of the knowledge of those pathways to make them more and more potent. Uh, and to drive us forward. That's that's where I see the role is here. And then I, I think that ties then back into some of the work that you're trying to do with those multiple farms across uh, the various provinces in Canada is the same kind of thing to identify, you know, what are the differences and, and uh, how are they responding to those unique environments on each farm? That's right. Yeah, that's interesting. So if you had any advice for someone listening to this podcast who is a, um, you know, as a practical uh, swine production person or uh, animal uh, swine uh, health practitioner, another swine nutritionist like myself, wh what advice would you give them about the microbiome and the study of the microbiome, knowing that we're just on the front end of discovering all of the things that it does? You know, we've got other workers doing uh, research between the gut and brain axis or the gut and the lung axis and and let alone um, the work that we've discussed here today just on diversity bet within the animal and between animals and and uh, trying to understand that diversity in the gut microbiome what what bit of advice would you have for someone looking for you know where's the practicality of this and and maybe your final thoughts well, as we said, we're still, as you mentioned yourself, we're still in the early phases, I think, in microbiome. There's, there's, a, there's a considerable amount of, of promise here, but I don't think we've delivered on that promise just yet. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, I would point to the fact that, you're, you, that many of our strategies, management strategies, prophylactic health management strategies, are in fact related to the microbiome. Um, you know, the use of fiber, the avoidance of high amounts of protein and particularly undigestible fermental protein in the early post weaning phase that, you know, where those proteins might uh, might support the uh, growth of putrefactive bacteria in the distal gut and, and, and uh, increase their uh, susceptibility to disease. The, the use of soluble fiber, and that's a whole other area with respect to nutrition, understanding better the different types of fiber and their impact on the microbiome and short-chain fatty acid generation. So I would say just if you take a step back and think about how you're managing pigs, there's a mic microbiome component to all of those things, how you mix pigs, when you switch the diet, and when you decide to switch the diet, you know, most, most nutritionists have a um, have a handle on, uh, I will only change by 5% a main ingredient. Why do you do that? When, when probably least class would tell you to change it sometimes by 20 or 30%. Uh, mm -hmm. 
that is probably microbiome related, right? That you're causing a dramatic shift in the microbiome and opening up all these niches that weren't there before because of that um, disruption uh, to, to pathogen. So there's lots of things already happening on the farm practically that are really have uh, a micro, microbial origin in terms of uh, why we're doing them and we probably didn't think about it before. So a lot of this information is, is actually already to some degree resulted in, in, uh, in, in practical um, nutrition and management strategies, affects our practical nutrition and management strategies. Very good. Very good. If there was a resource out there that you could point someone to who was not an expert in the microbiome but just wanted to background themselves on it, whether it's the human microbiome or the animal microbiome, um, is there is there a good text that you've come across in the scientific press or the popular press that's a that's just a good point of reference for for the layperson? Uh that's a tough question, Joe. I, I, I'd have to think about it. Uh, there, okay. there are, I mean, you do the Google search for microbiome, and there's, there's, you know, you'll come back with thousands and thousands of hits. It continues to be a very hot topic, and I, and I understand it's tough to wade through that kind of a uh, when there's so much out there. What, uh, what can you focus in on? Um, uh, you know, but actually, many of the from the pig world, many of the you know pig site and. Uh, uh, those kinds of, of sites now have connections to good resources, have links to good resources to give you some background. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. Dr. Van Kessel, I appreciate your time with us today and certainly uh, appreciate the work that you've done with us and, and the work that you continue to do. And so I just, uh, again, wanted to express our appreciation for spending your time with us and look forward to, to uh, catching up with you at the next uh post-pandemic digestive physiology of pigs event and some of these other scientific conferences. Thank you. That'd be great, Joe. Yeah, happy to be with you today. Thank you for joining us today. For additional information on Filio's swine programs, products, and recommendations, and research data regarding our work with the microbiome, animal performance, and well-being, please visit our website at filio-lasaf.com. Keep listening to future podcasts to learn more about the pig microbiome and research frontiers with gut physiology and the microbiome, or reach out to us directly through the website. Thank you, and have a great day.